If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the April 12, 2021 Book Club edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. We're a few weeks into spring 2021, and vaccines are making an inroad, so it's time to redefine the term beach body by a roomy caftan and compile a summer reading list. Tonight, IMRU is taking a deep dive into our archives to revisit three of our favorite authors. The first is pioneering gay Chicano author John Ricci, who turned 90 last week on March 10th. Author John Ricci shocked America with the homosexual abandon depicted in his first novel, City of Night. He followed this auspicious debut with three more odes to cruising, The Sexual Outlaw, Numbers, and Rushes, before shifting to the more mainstream with The Miraculous Day of Amalia Gomez, Our Lady of Babylon, Fourth Angel, The Vampires, Bodies and Souls, and Marilyn's Daughter. Now a respected teacher of writing at the University of Southern California, John Retchie's book, The Coming of the Night, returns him to the abject territory of dark streets, buff bodies, gay bars, and the endless sexual hunt. In his apartment, Jesse outfitted himself in the uniform of many gay men in West Hollywood, snug shorts to show off his legs and round butt, a tight tank top to show off his swimmer's torso and his slim waist, and Reeboks without socks to bring it all together. Proud to be gay and sexy. Older people, people over 30, still had all those guilts about being gay. Guilty about what, he'd like to ask them. He wouldn't change being gay for anything in the world. He didn't have to march in the gay pride parade to show he was proud. He did go, though, to cruise among all those showy guys without shirts, marching or watching. He always drew lots of admiring looks himself and extended a lot. He wasn't what people called an activist. He showed his pride by being gay every moment of his life. What better way was there? What was so special about being heterosexual? He had noticed that very often attractive heterosexual men didn't do much for themselves, let themselves get out of shape, wore baggy clothes. Gay men of the same age cared, went to the gym, stayed trim, healthy. 
best of all, at 22, and here Jesse decided to wear his faded denim cutoffs, cut short rather than the khaki shorts he had first pulled out. He had his whole life before him, the part of it that mattered. When he turned 29, he planned to die, just die. Growing old was kind of like dying, maybe worse, because you were aware of growing old, making out less and less until you couldn't make out anymore. What is the biggest misconception about John Ritchie? Well, there are so many. One that lingers is that I'm quite threatening in some way. And um, in interviews, very often, I have to spend the first few minutes convincing the interviewer that I'm not hostile uh, and that, indeed, I'm quite amenable. I think that that comes about mostly from misinterpreting some attitudes of my character and putting them onto me. Well, your characters are quite rough, coming up in full leather on a Harley. and Sure. And yet, I'm not very friendly toward the S&M faction of, um, you know, in the, on the gay frontier, not at all. And yes, my characters uh, do, you know, all kinds of things. That does not mean that I approve of what they're doing by any means. And, and I try very hard in my books to indicate where my true feelings lie. I know that I was asked about ageism, for God's sake, because one of my characters in The Coming of the Night is 22 and refuses to go with anybody over 30. I mean, obviously, that's not my attitude, and I decry the ageism, but I have to be true to that character when he expresses himself. When you're writing, do the characters sometimes take control? Yes, they do, but always within my firm grasp. I'm fond of saying that if you create a very good character, he or she does begin to assert himself. And then you tend to want to be kind. And I tell writers that I deal with, in life, be very, very, very kind. But in your art, be brutal. Take me back to the first book, City of Night. It's hard to believe that, in retrospect, that came out in 1963. It did. Um, Well, I can tell you, I had no intention of writing City of Night. It began as a letter that I wrote to a friend of mine right after I had some experiences in New Orleans, uh, after Mardi Gras, and I I was pretty wiped out in many, many, many ways. And um, I wrote a long letter to a friend of mine after I left New Orleans, of course, and I kept the letter. I didn't send it and then came upon it a few, uh, maybe a week or so later, and then thought it sounded good. And I redid it, and I sent it out to uh, two literary publications, and both of them accepted it. And um, so it appeared as a letter, but now more formally structured, called Mardi Gras. It appeared in the Evergreen Review in 1958. And um, based on that story, my soon-to-be editor wrote me and asked if that is perhaps a part of a novel. Until then, I had not ever thought of writing about my experiences on the streets and in the cities. And I was so eager for salvation, and it seemed like salvation because I saw myself really, really, really falling psychologically. Um, So I answered yes, that it was part of a novel. And then time passed, brief time, and then he asked to see the whole manuscript. There was no manuscript at all, but I continued the subterfuge. And by then, I began then recording some of the experiences into a book. And then I was offered contracts by four different publishers for the book, which surprised me very much. 
I accepted one from Grove, and then I didn't finish the book. I roamed some more, and then a friend of mine was kind enough to uh, allow me to go back to El Paso to spend some time there and finish City of Night. And that's how the book came out. I didn't anticipate that it would create the sensation that it did. Not at all. I thought it was going to be hailed as a literary work and that it would sell a few copies. Instead, the first reviews, people forget this now, I mean, or don't know about it, the first reviews of City of Night were scathing, scathing, to the point that I left the country. But then the sales were something else, you know, it was a huge national bestseller. But it had to be a very shocking book to people in 1963. City of Night was, and I suppose I was naive. Well, I don't think too many people consider their own experiences shocking because by then you've lived with them. So I was very surprised at, at the alarm that was, you know, so incredible. People became alarmed by it. You've had a number of wonderful novels since The Sexual Outlaw and City of Night. And this is my 12th. And um, a curious thing that might be of interest is that when I veered away from the subject of homosexuality centrally in my novels, I sadly lost my gay audience in large part and did not gain that many heterosexual readers, which is sad because they are literary books. I was asked if I thought that heterosexual people would be reading The Coming of the Night. And I answered that for many reasons they should. But the main reason is just to keep up with what is literature, what is being produced. And this is not happening. We're categorizing things by subject still too much. You are a first-generation Mexican-American. How much influence does that heritage have on the patterns of masculinity that you detail in some of your books? It doubles the problem, and I am very saddened that even today, and within my family, not my immediate family, but in-laws and everything, it's very difficult for young people to come out because the whole thing is doubled. You have the, the machismo in the background, and then you know you have the general business of the hatred of homosexuals. It still lingers, no matter how we say not. So you have to work against two currents the generalized one that comes from religions mostly, and the more particularized one that comes from that damn Mexican machismo. That accounts for the reason that there are so many Hispanic and black gay bashers, though I think a lot more in Los Angeles are Hispanic, much more, many more. They're Catholics, supposedly, that, you know, that they can reconcile one with the other. But then, of course, you, know, you have the Pope saying, we hate the sin, not the sinner. I mean, how do you separate one thing from the other? Besides being a writer and a teacher, you're also an icon, sort of a symbol. Um, right now, the gay movement's in a period where many people are demanding their rights to be Boy Scouts, soldiers, Republicans, married, and have kids. Have we grown up? I approve of everything that is being done to allow us to join, and then I would say, then don't join. <laughs> I mean, we should have the right to do all of those things, to join all those organizations, but I would say then stay away from who wants them. Do you think maybe it's a backlash after having come through an epidemic? Yes, that's one of the phenomenon out of the epidemic 
is the emergence, the prominence of the muscle queen. And I'm glad to consider myself a forerunner of that uh, school. But I think that the aversion to the imagery of death that we were seeing among our friends everywhere has created this new drive for physicality. It's always been there in the gay world, but now, more prominently than not, you have a new gay figure among the males who is often quite muscular and still quite effeminate. (laughs) You know, and it's a new creation. It's a new creation. In the coming of the night, AIDS is a specter that hovers around the edge of the party. What was your inspiration for the book? An actual event, Steve, um, that I couldn't get out of my mind. Most of my novels spring out of actuality, and then, of course, I embellish and derive. Uh, Back in 1981, I was in, I think it's called the West Hollywood Park, late, late at night. On weekends, it turned into the site of orgies and a lot of sex. And a very beautiful young man of... I would say 21, 22, uh, proceeded to remove all his clothes and push himself against a wall and to allow the people that he decided to uh, have intercourse with him. And uh, that same night, I ran into a friend of mine from Texas. While all that was going on, he said, have you heard about this illness that is appearing? And I said, I have heard about it. And he said, do you believe it? And none of us wanted to believe it. No, of course not. But I thought that night, my God, if it is true what is happening in this park with men lined up, I didn't write about it until, you know, many years later. But, of course, that's what is included in this novel. Is there a message? Oh, yes. I'm sorry that some people have missed that it is a very cautionary novel. Not because, as has been said, we were courting AIDS. That's absolute nonsense. We were not courting AIDS any more than uh, legionnaires were courting legionnaires' disease or or swimmers were courting uh, polio. It's only because we are still outcasts and our sexuality is so central to our lives that that judgment was passed, that it was a judgment on our sexuality. That simply is, is not so. But the caution here was the same one that I voiced earlier, that we were substituting feelings and emotions for sensation where nothing was enough. The central character, Jesse, wants to celebrate his year of being gay by having as many contacts as he can to the point, of course, where it all is now any kind of sensation. And there's a brutality that was at play. So yes, indeed, it is a cautionary uh, tale. At the same time that it celebrates and that I continue to celebrate our abundant sexuality. This has been a conversation with author John Ritchie. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Strangers in the night Exchanging glances Wandering in the night What were the chances We'd be sharing love Before the night was through Something in your eyes was so inviting Something in your smile was so exciting Something in my heart 
told me I must have you Writers Michael Cunningham, Kate Braverman, Sandra Singh Lowe, and Gina Nahai were students of Ricci's creative writing classes before becoming published authors. The 1983 song, Numbers, by the English synth-pop duo Soft Cell, was inspired by Ricci's 1967 novel of the same title. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's time for Who Said That? on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. Born in 1791, he would later serve in both houses of the Pennsylvania legislature. He also served as Minister to Russia under President Andrew Jackson and Secretary of State under President James Polk. Before serving as President of the United States, he lived for 15 years with close friend Alabama Senator William Rufus King. Rumors swirled around Washington, D.C. about their relationship. Andrew Jackson even referred to Senator King as Miss Nancy and Aunt Fancy. While apart during this relationship, the future president said, I have gone a-wooing to several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any one of them. Who said that? It was James Buchanan, who in 1857 became America's 15th president, and the only president to remain a bachelor. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Don McCarty. And you are listening to RMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. Augustine Burroughs' 2002 memoir, Running with Scissors, spent eight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was made into a 2006 award-winning film directed by a relatively unknown Ryan Murphy. Burroughs' follow-up book, Dry, dealt with his addictions. He addressed both in this interview with Steve Pride. There are very few originals in the world. Augustine Burroughs is one. His memoir, Running with Scissors, and its sequel, Dry, are horrific and yet screamingly funny. That's a pretty neat trick. I'm Augustine Burroughs. Augustine, it's nice to meet you, but I just finished reading your books back to back, and I feel like I already know you. Yeah, I get that a lot, because both of the books are so intimate. They're just excruciatingly personal. So it's not uncommon for me to be walking down the street, to be recognized by somebody, and have that particular somebody come up and say, you know, Augustine? And then go into an incredibly personal, often horrifying story about themselves. I mean, I remember recently one woman, I was at the supermarket picking up some goat cheese and this older woman, very, very well-dressed woman, um, this is in Upper West Side of Manhattan, came over to me and she said, aren't you Augustine Burroughs? And I sort of said, yes. And she said, I loved your book. And I said very graciously, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And she leaned in really close to me, really, really close. And she said, when I was a little girl, my mother used to give me Dr. Pepper enemas and then make me drink the liquid. And she just had this crazed look. And I mean, I was like, lady, I need goat cheese. I have to go now. For people that haven't yet read Running With Scissors, tell us about your very unique childhood. 
it started off normal enough. You know, I had two academic parents. My father was the head of the mathematics department at the University of Massachusetts, and my mother was working on her graduate studies in creative writing. Things started to go wrong when I was about eight. My parents had a really unhappy marriage, and that's not so uncommon. You know, that's not memoir material. You know, they fought a lot. What began to happen was that my mother's brain sort of rewired itself, and she began to go crazy. She was a poet, and I think she began to identify a little too strongly with Anne Sexton. And in order to save their marriage, my mother and father began to see this psychiatrist named Dr. Finch. They went for weekly therapy sessions, and, you know, it didn't work, as it doesn't work a lot of the time. So my parents divorced. My mother began to see Dr. Finch every week and then, you know, a few times a week. And then I began to see Dr. Finch, and he looked like Santa Claus. That was my first impression of him. He was a short, big guy with white hair and a white beard and big, white, bristly eyebrows. And he was very charismatic, and he sort of talked like this. And he was a very sort of captivating guy, a lot of charisma. Uh, He was also insane sort of Charles Manson, I guess, without the machete. And my mother became just in this odd sort of symbiotic relationship with him and gave him all sort of control of her mind. So she went completely crazy, could not take care of me anymore. And when I say crazy, I mean, she was, you know, having to be hospitalized in mental hospitals. She would have psychotic episodes. You know, she was hallucinating and she was hearing voices and she was seeing things and she was smoking cigarettes in the bathroom with her dead grandfather. She was literally crazy. And I started spending more and more time with the doctor. And over time, I began to spend some time at the doctor's house. And the doctor's house was this dilapidated, pink, peeling, falling apart Victorian in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a very pristine, well-heeled college town, Smith College. And the street was beautiful, you know, with one beautiful house after another. And then this eyesore of a house with a dirt lawn and a falling down barn in the back. And the doctor's family lived there. He had like six kids and patients and adopted children, you know. And it was a large, large, busy house. And he had this beaten down sort of martyr of a wife. And the doctor had a daughter, Natalie, who was around my age. And she was this very precocious, kind of ratty, greasy, funny girl and her um, slightly older sister. And we would play. And basically what happened was one day my mother said, you're going to live here from now on. And so when I was 13, she signed me over, legal guardianship, to this doctor. This was a place where there was no school. That was it for school. There were no rules. There was no structure. I mean, you know, there was no bedtime. There was um, nothing that you think of as normal, you know, nothing that you think of as the way things are supposed to be. I mean, we were really wild, sort of loose kids left our own devices, sort of Pippi Longstocking, but darker in a way. The doctor's kids were all very eccentric. I mean, they were very, very, very highly energized and sexualized. And I felt like a little nerd because I was this little prissy thing, you know, in my polyester slacks. And, And here I was suddenly in this house with just dog hair everywhere and squalor and just kind of filth and loud shouting. They were very confrontational, you know. So I had to sort of shape shift to become one of these people suddenly. And there was a, a guy, uh, the doctor's adopted son, Neil, lived in the barn behind the house. And he was 33. And we became lovers, if you can call it that. How old were you at that time? I was 13. Basically, what happened was that I had confided to um, the doctor's secretary and second oldest daughter, Hope. You know, I told her I was gay. And she basically felt, you know, you should talk to my brother, Neil, because so is he. 
so Neil and I developed this friendship based on me sort of coming out to him and telling him about what was going on with me and how I felt abandoned and I was gay and all these sort of problems that I was feeling at the time. And it took me a long time to realize actually what happened. I say that we had this, we developed this sexual relationship, but it wasn't actually quite that simple. As I talk about in the book, there was a pretty violent sort of rape scene. He lived in the barn, then he moved out to his own apartment in a town nearby East Hampton. And I went up to look at some photographs that he had, and he just raped me, you know. And then he said, there, you still think you're gay? And I just remember feeling just pure hatred toward this guy. I hated him, and I just wanted to kill him. But that's not what happened. What happened is that uh, he became obsessed with me, and he was tortured by the fact that he was obsessed with a 13-year-old. The power dynamic shifted in the relationship, and he became sort of like this dog that I had, that I could tell him to do anything, and he would do it. It's a happy story in the sense that, I mean, I survived it. And the way I survived it was I retreated into my own internal world. I wrote in journals all the time. I carried these spiral five-subject notebooks, and I would just focus on the page and write what was happening to me. And that was how I got through it. And there was a lot of also fun. There was always something happening. The doctor was fond of having parades so he would, you know, tie us up in balloons and, you know, go celebrate World Father's Day. One thing the doctor also did is he, he felt that God spoke to him through the toilet. The shape of people's bowels, their turds in the toilet, would indicate our future. So he was going through this phase where he would do toilet bowl readings of um, his daughters. <laughs> and, I mean, there's just this stuff that's just so gross and vile and, and ridiculous that, I mean, you had to laugh at it. When things are that catastrophically terrible in your life, there's a certain point where, you know what, it's just funny. You are listening to This Way Out Radio Magazine. I am Steve Pride, and we are speaking with Augustine Burroughs, author of Dry and Running with Scissors. Augustine, when I finished reading Running with Scissors, I was so hopeful that the next chapter of your life which you chronicle in the book Dry, would document a happier time for you. Dry picks up more or less where Running With Scissors left off. And what what actually happened to me is that I got into advertising as a copywriter. And I got it. I understood it. Because, you know, you'd have someone come along, some company, some manufacturer, and they, you know, theoretically, they say to you, you know, we've got this toothpaste that we think is pretty great, but, but here's the problem. If you brush your teeth with it four times a day, it's going to cause mouth cancer and you're going to lose your jaw. And I look at that and I think, okay, great. Hey, now there's a toothpaste and just brush your teeth once a day. I always see the positive side. And that's why I was so good at advertising and I was really successful and I loved it, you know, and it was like, yeah, give me your exploding car, you know. Give me your Band-Aid that causes a rash. I could find the plus side, the positive spin. So now I was living in New York and I was making money. And I mean, I was just like, you know, bring on the martinis. And that's basically what it was like for me. I mean, I was working in, in advertising, having a great time and drinking hard, drinking hard all the time. Yeah, to have fun and go out definitely and go to bars because I was really shy. I could never meet guys unless I was drunk and I could never go to a gay bar unless I was drunk and I could never talk to anybody unless I was drunk. <laughs> but also because if I let myself just sit for five minutes without having to write an ad and without having a drink in my hand, I got sad and I got worried and I got scared because I felt so damaged. I felt so flawed that if I looked at it for more than five seconds, it was going to crush me. Now, the thing about alcohol that I discovered is that it's really great in a lot of ways. You know, it's definitely a social lubricant and it makes you less inhibited and it really is a lot of fun. I don't regret drinking. I had a great time. I loved it. 
it made me so uninhibited that I had experiences I never would have had, but I'm kind of glad I had them. But eventually, the physiology took over. And I became one of these people who used to reek of alcohol in the morning. So, you know, it came to a point where I had to um, be fired or go to rehab. So I was confronted, you know, a job. And, you know, so I went out, I shipped myself off to a gay rehab center in Minneapolis thinking, oh, this is going to be like a spa, you know, Ian Schrager. It's going to be really swanky. I'm going to have 400 cotton Egyptian sheets on the bed, you know, and large glass pictures of uh, ice water with lemon, and it's going to be just terrific. And, you know, it was horrible. It was just horrible. It was hospital with fluorescent lights and magic markers with boards. And it was like medical school for alcoholics with a bunch of gay guys who all had, like, let their hair go and were, like, looking just like crap. Sorriest group of fags you ever saw collected in a room. And surly dykes just sitting there. Happy hour was so over. And, um... So I'm in rehab, and now all this stuff I didn't want to think about, I got to think about. I mean, I want to check out immediately. And for the first three days, every day, I was I was there hour by hour. Eventually, you know, some of it started to make sense. I started to realize, hmm, yeah, okay, all these people around me that are all freaks and serious, serious rock-bottom alcoholics, of which I, by the way, am not, all of a sudden I realize I have kind of everything in common with them. I mean, I have my apartment back home in New York filled with 1,300 empty bottles of doers, which when I was living with it seemed fine. The apartment was complete squalor and I'm making six figures and I'm in advertising and I'm wearing an Armani suit and I'm coming home and I'm sleeping in sheets that I had peed in the night before. And there are fruit flies rotting all over the apartment and I have this collection of bottles. And when you live like that, when you're in the middle of it, as anyone out there listening who does live like that can tell you it doesn't matter because you don't see it. You know, I was focused on the computer, so I didn't see it. And it kind of becomes like a comfortable bird's nest. You know, you pad the filth and squalor down. You make a path from the bed to the refrigerator, to the bathroom, to your desk, and, you know, you don't see it. But if I heard anybody in the hall, I remember I would freeze and be perfectly quiet because I didn't want them to knock on the door because I could not open the door. I could not open the door. I was not a writer with a capital W when I wrote Dry. I was just a guy who was a mess, who got out of rehab and all of a sudden realized there are a lot more hours in the day than there used to be. Now I'm feeling the minutes, you know, it's like, okay, I'm sober. It's 4.30 in the afternoon. I'm sober. This is terrific. Time passes. It's 4.37. I'm sober. And um, this goes on one day, day by day for the rest of your life. I mean, I was going crazy. That's the thing they don't tell you in rehab. They don't tell you you're going to get sober and you're going to get a whole lot of hours every day and you're not going to know what to do with it and you're going to go crazy, you know, and they say, go to a meeting. Well, that's great. But a meeting is an hour, you know, what about the other 23? So I, not knowing what to do, reverted to my old childhood ways and I began to write. And I began writing on the day I got out of rehab and I didn't stop. And I just like to tell people, you know, wasn't that long ago. I have not been writing for 20 years. I've not been writing for 15 years. You know, this is since 1999. This is 1999 is when all, you know, this sort of started. The before and the after of my life is just stunning. The reinvention that occurred as a result of not drinking, you know, as a result of just of not doing that. That's what has been sort of the V8 moment. Wow, I could have had a V8 on a profound level. That's what it's been like. Just realizing, man, you know, I wasted so much time. This has been a conversation with Augustine Burroughs, author of Dry and Running with Scissors. In April, the paperback editions of both were number four and five, respectively, on the New York Times bestseller list. 
Augustine Burroughs is also the author of the best-selling novel, Cellavision. For more information, point your internet browser to augustine.com or prideonscreen.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I gazed into the mirror, said I'm crazy, turned around and began to smile. I never thought I'd live to 21, but now I think I'll stay a while. Confusion and seclusion run together like a loser runs to crime. My, my suicide is easy, but a sleazy way to try to beat the time. Well, yesterday was vanity. I used too much profanity. Tomorrow damns humanity. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. It's time for Who Said That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. The Civil War had ended just days earlier. Church bells began tolling. Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. Far away in Brooklyn, this poet frantically scoured all the newspapers for the details. In stunned silence, he took a ferry to Manhattan. As rain fell, black clouds hung over the city. Flags everywhere were at half-mast. The next day, he put pen to paper, honoring his fallen president. By many has this union been helped, he wrote. But if one name, one man must be picked out, he, most of all, is the conservator of it, to the future. He was assassinated. But the Union is not assassinated. The nation is immortal. Who said that? It was the famed American poet, Walt Whitman. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Armistead Maupin, author of Tales of the City, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. IMRU, IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. IMRU has been on the air for nearly 50 years, and one of our most frequent literary guests has also been our favorite, Tales of the City writer Armistead Maupin. On this outing, we discussed his 2000 roman à clay, The Night Listener. Writer Armstead Maupin is the creator of the award-winning newspaper serial Tales of the City, which later became an award-winning series of books, which later became an award-winning television miniseries. He is also the author of Maybe the Moon, and his latest novel is called The Night Listener. The Night Listener, at its heart, is a psychological suspense story. It's as close as I could get to the feeling I had when I read, uh, or rather saw, the film Vertigo at the age of 14. I'd always wanted to write a novel that captured that same feeling of uh, human longing and loss and the nature of our emotions within the context of a, of a mystery story. So uh, this was my best effort at that, really. It fundamentally involves a writer named Gabriel Noon, who is a radio storyteller, a man who tells stories on NPR late at night. How autobiographical is this book? Well, that's a tricky one to answer because it's sort of emotionally autobiographical. I have tried to write about some things in my own life that are real in order to to lend a, a verisimilitude to it. I broke up with my partner, Terry Anderson, four years ago. That experience is recorded in the novel within the context of the drama that I have invented. 
The character certainly resembles me more than most. He's a 54-year-old uh, gay storyteller, so that's certainly me. But I take him off on adventures that I've never had. Some of them I wish I'd had. There's a sex scene towards the end of the novel that a lot of people assume happened to me, and I can't say that it did, really. But it was necessary at that point in the novel in order to tell the story the way I wanted to tell the story, which becomes the overriding thing. And I've been uh, very autobiographical, as you mentioned. In the past, my last novel, Maybe the Moon, was about a heterosexual female Jewish dwarf actress working in Hollywood. So she was the perfect disguise for me. I was able to say things through her that are really about my own heart because I had such a good disguise. Gabriel Noon is not a good disguise. He resembles me in, in many ways, but that doesn't mean I'm always telling the truth about my life or the the lives of the people around me. Are all of your books basically about the search for family? Yeah, I think they are. I didn't realize that for a long time. <laughs> my books have been my therapy, I suppose, over the years. I didn't have therapy for many, many years. I've only been to a shrink maybe for a six-month period in my life. But I've always been able to get out those thoughts through my writing. And Tales of the City revealed me to me in the course of writing it. I think a lot of people forget that Tales of the City was written over a very long period. Well, it was about a 12-year span when it ran in the in the San Francisco Chronicle. Not, I might add, <laughs> all the time. Tales of the City and more Tales of the City ran the first two years. I nearly had a nervous breakdown, and then I figured out that a novel would be about six months' worth of columns, so I uh, would contract with the Chronicle for a six-month period and then stop and take a break. I was surprised when I read that it wasn't an immediate hit. As a book, yeah, uh, because it really people didn't know about it. It took a while for it to, to get its legs, really. We took about 25,000 returns, as I recall, on Tales of the City when the, when the novel was first published. That was my first big letdown. I remember thinking, oh, boy, you know, I had a half a million or something in San Francisco reading this serial and loving it, and I thought, well, if just... You know, one out of ten of those people goes out and buys the book, I'll have a big... Well, why would they go out and buy the book? They'd been reading it in the newspaper, you know? So it was a very slow build, really. I didn't have a, a New York Times bestseller until the sixth novel, Sure of You. I'm happy that it built that way, really, because you don't feel like an overnight sensation. You're not a fluke. You're, you're somebody whose popularity has grown because people have liked what you do and passed it on to friends and... Uh, the word of mouth is what's made it succeed. When I was writing Tales of the City, nobody wrote about gay characters. So it was pretty radical to begin with, to pick up your morning newspaper and to, to find that several of the residents of this apartment house slept with members of their own sex. I couldn't write explicit sex scenes, of course, because it was a daily newspaper, but I could suggest an awful lot. And I think in some ways those restrictions were useful to me because they made me consider everybody in my audience and tell everybody's story. I might have been sort of gay-centric had I had total freedom and uh, an all-gay audience, but I had to keep everybody who picked up that newspaper potentially interested, and that was the fun of it, that the person who was reading the storyline about Franny Halcyon, the very proper Hillsborough matron, would suddenly stumble across a scene at a gay bathhouse and have to read it if he or she wanted to find out what was happening in the story. The characters were also interconnected, ultimately, that you had to take an interest in lives that were not like yours if you read that serial or if you read the book. 
it compels you to to look at the lives of other people, no matter who you are. And I think that accounts for the long-term success of Tales of the City. To my great surprise and delight, the first three of the novels are all on the French paperback bestseller list right now. They're more popular in France per capita than they've been anywhere else in the world. I think possibly because they were able to sit down and read them all in one fell swoop, uh, and they're about to be serialized in Japan. Um, and this is pretty good news to somebody who thought that I was writing a sort of inside joke about San Francisco for a daily newspaper 25 years ago. You came from a conservative Southern background. I read somewhere that you even once wrote news copy for Jesse Helms' TV station. I did, back in 1967 or something like that. I was a young conservative back in those days. I was trying very hard to please my family. I think this had something to do with being queer. I've always said that if you, you know, scratch a Tory and you'll find a homo, because people who are trying to keep the lid on, who want to stay in the closet and are deathly afraid of being discovered— will often embrace a rigid political structure in order to do that. And that's certainly what was happening with me. Once I got to San Francisco, just a few years later, after Vietnam, basically, I discovered this place that was so joyful and so matter-of-fact about my sexuality that I could be matter-of-fact about it. The straight people in San Francisco were far more civilized about homosexuality than I was when I arrived in town. There was still a lot of self-loathing going on on my part, and uh, the town just took me by the collar and shook it out of me, and it was a wonderful experience. In case you've just joined us, I'm Steve Pride, and we're talking to author Armstead Maupin on the international gay and lesbian radio magazine, This Way Out. You are a good friend of Rock Hudson. Yes, I, story I, I, I would City. never have defined myself as a good friend of Rock Hudson, but apparently he... He regarded me as such. I mean, I never felt that I got that close to him, but he didn't have that many people in his life who knew him very well. And um, that's a story that parallels a story in Further Tales of the City. Yeah, we actually filmed a scene that recreates one of the famous beauties parties. That's what he called them. It's where a local optometrist would get the 50 hunkiest guys in town to be waiting for rock when he got home from the road. And to me, a kid from San Francisco who'd never seen such a thing, it was, um, it was stunning. It was roughly like seeing a circuit party for the first time, I suppose but with a movie star at the center of it all. I wrote about that in Further Tales of the City, and it's actually recorded rather lovingly in the miniseries. I think I was able to be in his life because I learned at a fairly early age how to be comfortable around celebrity. It was just really a matter of empathy, really. It seemed to me that what a famous person would want would be to be treated in an unhysterical fashion, to simply link up with another person on a human one-on-one -on -one level. I think about that when people approach me and, and get all weird and googy on me. <laughs> uh, there's a lonely making process there because you want to link up with other people. No matter who you are, you always want to link with them. And if they're treating you like some creature from outer space, then you want to get away from it as soon as possible. So, yeah, I knew him, and, and I ended up writing about him in Further Tales. I used blanks in the original column and in the book because he was still alive at the time, and I was trying to keep him his life private. But I also wanted people to know that this was a real person and to make the point that there were major movie stars who were leading this weird double life and who basically became anonymous. They became invisible in some strange way because their true selves 
could never be presented to the world, or at least they felt they could never be presented to the world. When the time came to make the miniseries, we had a choice. I could have called him Rock Hudson, but I was so afraid that people would look at whatever actor played to him and say, that's not Rock Hudson, <laughs> which would happen to almost anybody who played him because there was they sort of broke the mold with Rock. So I decided to just basically give him one of those early 1950s made-up movie star names, Cage Tyler. He's coming over. Oh, yeah, he can do that sometimes. Uh, who the hell are these people? <laughs> I was just asking the same thing. Well, here's a handy guideline. The uh, blondes are all named Scott. The brunettes are all named Grant. That's all you need to know, trust me. <laughs> Cage Tyler, this is Michael Tolliver. Hello there, Michael Tolliver. Hi. Has he given you the house tour yet? Well, actually... No. Why don't you give it to him? Would you like that? Sure. Sure? Yeah, come on. I've had people come up to me and say, Paul Hopkins has to be gay. Well, sorry, he's not. But when you see him kiss Billy Campbell in Further Tales of the City, it'll be very hard to believe that he's, he's not done that before. Well, he kissed him in the last miniseries, but they're getting even better at it now. <laughs> it's really it's amazing stuff. And it touches me tremendously because they're there fulfilling a fantasy of mine, you know, to see romance, you know, real passion and romance between two men on a movie screen. Uh, is something that I ached for when I was a younger man and never got to see. And now I'm able to stand on the set with these two guys, these two naked guys in some instances, laughing and joking and being utterly believable in what they're doing. I, I remember saying to Paul, uh, he does a scene with a Hispanic cop named Bill Rivera in Further Tales of the City. It's a very, very hot scene. And afterwards, I said, Paul, you, you're just amazing. And he said, well, I know, I know what that's about. I know how to do that. I, that. That makes sense to me. What he means is he knows what sex is. He knows what passion is. He's experienced it with women. It's no big leap for him to, as an actor, to imagine that and to impersonate that with a man. And then he added, it's that gay irony that I can't do. <laughs> And I said, well, that's because you, there's no pain in your life, Paul. You need more pain, and you'd be able to do that irony stuff. Is it true that you make an appearance in this film? I've been making an appearance in all of the Tales miniseries. I was sitting in the window, typing, watching Michael and Brian sunning on the lawn in Tales of the City. I was the priest in More Tales of the City in the final scene where the dismembered foot falls from the ceiling of Grace Cathedral. I was the priest with the two altar boys behind the altar. And in Further Tales of the City, I can be seen coming out of the glory holes as Michael Tolliver goes in, and our eyes meet very briefly as we pass in the doorway. That's sort of symbolic. Well, I suppose it is, although if it were really a realistic scene, and I saw somebody that looked like that going into the glory holes, I probably would have made a quick circle and gone back in again. Do you think that there is a gay artistic sensibility? Are gay men in some way fundamentally different? Oh, boy. I don't know. I think there's a queer sensibility, and I think that all sorts of people have it. I have known straight people with a queer sensibility. They're such outsiders that they create art because of it. People who feel separated from the world, who retreat to a kind of fantasy world. And some beautiful things have happened because of that, and I think an awful lot of gay people go in that direction. On the other hand, I know gay people who grew up to be happy refrigerator repairmen and didn't create art at all. Um, so 
it's very tough to generalize about that. I think my own internal life as a young queer is the reason that I'm a storyteller. When I was um, six years old, I knew that I was different from other boys, that I didn't want to play the war games, the shoot 'em up stuff, that I hated competitive sports. I knew all of that. In some ways, that makes me feel more queer than anything, even today. I think that a dislike of sports is the most dangerous thing you can express in America because there are plenty of queers out there. Look at the gay games who are, who are happy to embrace um, competitive sports. I find them stupid and pointless and oppressive. And, and I felt all of this when I was six years old. And long before I had any sexual instincts, before I realized I was attracted to boys, I felt this specialness. So I know my queerness was a part of me from a very early age. And because of that, I felt the necessity to tell stories and to, to make up a, a world that conformed to the way I saw things. This has been a conversation with author Armstead Maupin. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. There's still time for a last word. And tonight, that's a reading by Armistead Maupin from his book, The Night Listener. I'm a fabulist by trade, so be forewarned. I've spent years looting my life for fiction. Like a magpie, I save the shiny stuff and discard the rest. It's of no use to me if it doesn't serve the geometry of the story. This makes me less than reliable when it comes to the facts. Ask Jess Carmody, who lived with me for ten years and observed this affliction firsthand. He even had a name for it, the Jeweled Elephant Syndrome, after a story I once told him about an old friend from college. My friend, whose name was Boyd, joined the Peace Corps in the late 60s. He was sent to a village in India where he fell in love with a local girl and eventually proposed to her. But Boyd's blue-blooded parents back in South Carolina were so aghast at the prospect of dusky grandchildren that they refused to attend the wedding in New Delhi. So Boyd sent them photographs. The bride turned out to be an aristocrat of the highest caste, better bred by far than any member of Boyd's family. The couple had been wed in regal splendor, perched atop a pair of jeweled elephants. Boyd's parents, imprisoned in their middle-class snobbery, 
had managed to miss the social event of a lifetime. I had told that story so often that Jess knew it by heart. So when Boyd came to town on business and met Jess for the first time, Jess was sure he had the perfect opener. Well, he said brightly, Gabriel tells me you got married on an elephant. Boyd just blinked at him in confusion. I could already feel myself reddening. You weren't? No, Boyd said with an uncomfortable laugh. We were married in a Presbyterian church. Jess said nothing, but he gave me a heavy-lidded stare whose meaning I had long before learned to decipher. You were never to be trusted with the facts. In my defense, the essence of the story had been true. Boyd had indeed married an Indian girl he had met in the Peace Corps, and she had proved to be quite rich. And Boyd's parents, who were in fact exceptionally stuffy, had always regretted that they'd missed the wedding. I don't know what to say about those elephants, except that I believed in them utterly. They certainly never felt like a lie, more like a kind of shorthand for a larger, less satisfying truth. Most stories have holes in them that cry out for jeweled elephants. And my instinct, alas, is to supply them. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm your host, Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. That's public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, Castbox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. Who's the person that you woke up next to today? If you were any older, then I know you'd have to pay your way. Well, maybe you do already, but you make out they pay you. Did you ask yourself where did love go wrong with you? Tell me your name, I don't want to know And don't forget to take all reminders when you go Good things have to end and I was never any good at saying goodbye Because when I say goodbye a silly thing happens and I always cry
good thing down for long Numbers, throw them away like Kleenex Numbers, pick them up and throw them away Numbers, oh, numbers Pick them up, throw them away, throw them away Like numbers Oh, my God. 